0: Uh, Acts, the second chapter. I want to start at verse number 1. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that tonight you would just unconventionally give me grace to speak and communicate. Lord, that you would give me the words to say. Give our hearts the the propensity to be able to receive everything that you have for us. And we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Well... Tonight, uh, it's not going to be conventional, like I said. I don't want to start anything brand new just yet. But um, as I was praying about this and looking towards 2023 and what God, I feel like He's wanting to do in our hearts and our lives, I wanted wanted to talk to you a little bit about the presence of God and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, how that works in our lives and in our church and and where we're headed. So tonight, I want to talk to you from... The subject, how to steward the anointing. How to steward the anointing. Now, tonight, when you think about stewardship, when all of us think about stewardship, now, if I were to ask you, when I say the word stewardship, what comes into your mind? Everybody may be different. For me, there's a name that pops into my heart. It's Dave Ramsey. Because Dave Ramsey is the stewardship guru, right? Right? teaching everybody to get out of debt to save and those kind of things. Um, But a lot of people, when they think about stewardship, they automatically think about finances or they think about how to steward their time. Can I ask you a question? How many of you in 2023 would be uh, very beneficial for you to learn how to utilize your calendar a little bit more, right? Here's the thing. Money and time are very valuable, but they're different in this regard. Um, if life affords you, you can make more money, but you can't make more time. None of us can go back and tack on that extra hour or two that we lose. So it's important for us to steward that. But tonight, I want to talk about another level of stewardship. I want to talk about stewarding the anointing of God or the presence of God. Now, before we go further, it might beg some of us to ask the question, what is the anointing? What is the The presence of God. And so tonight I want to just talk to you about this for a few moments. But the anointing in a very simple definition is this. It's the tangible touch or the presence of the Holy Spirit upon a person or a group of people. Very, very, very simplistic. The tangible touch. In other words, you can see it and you can feel it. It is the tangible touch or presence of the Holy Spirit upon a person or a group of people. In the Old Testament, when God would solidify the office, and in the New Testament, there are five ministry offices, the the, uh, apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, teacher. In the Old Testament, there were three primarily, the priest, the prophet, and the king. And the priest and the prophet and the king they would all be anointed, and in those days, they would have the big horn of oil and it would be poured upon their head. There was none of this little a dabble do you stuff. They took a whole horn of oil and they would anoint you. so if you were anointed, you could be smelled all the way down the street when the wind hits you just right, you could smell it because the anointing was a, a, a fragrant oil that was made of, of, of myrrh and there were different things that were in there and that olive was crushed and, and so they were anointed for those seasons. And that anointing in the physical aspect was symbolic of the Lord's approval or the Lord's presence upon that person. And so that's the Old Testament type. But in the New Testament, we also see God's presence coming upon people and filling places and and moving in supernatural ways. And so tonight, I want us to, to look at this because I believe if they needed the anointing in the Old Testament to have God's approval and to do God's work, I think we need the anointing and God's approval to do the work in the day and hour in which we live. Do you agree with me tonight? I believe it's vitally important. And so here's what I want you to know. You can 100% positively tell when the anointing of God is on somebody's life. You can tell it. You can sense it. It's tangible. Oftentimes there's overwhelming peace, there's present power, there's miraculous signs, among other things. And here's what I want you to know. That's the type of Christian that I want to be. I want to be the type of Christian who is anointed by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. On a personal level, that's great. Uh, on a corporate level, we need to be the kind of church that is anointed by the power of, of the Holy Spirit. That's the type of church that you walk into and you realize that this is not business as usual. You can sense the presence of God. You can feel the peace of God. You can, you can tangibly touch the love of God. People say that's a loving church. You can sense the presence of God. That's the kind of people that we need to strive to be. But here's what I want you to know. You have to cultivate that type of atmosphere, because the, the presence of God, although the presence of God, God is all, all places at all times, that's called omnipresent. He's not tangibly present in that way all the time. In other words, there are times where we come into service and, uh, in this building and I just am in worship and I sense the presence of God. i, I got to be honest with you. I don't always feel that when I sneak in here to grab an ink pen out of the back of the pew. Now, how many of you know God is still here? But His tangible presence manifests in a powerful way. And so tonight, I want to show you from Acts chapter 2 and actually launch into some other passages that I think will build a framework for us to learn how to steward the anointing of God in our lives and in our church. It's vitally important. Now, I want you to go with me to Acts 2. This is the foundation of the early church. This is... After Jesus' ascension, he shows himself alive. He gives them instructions, and he tells them in the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke to tarry in Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Father. And the promise of the Father was solidified by John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, because John said, There's one coming after I, whose shoes I am unworthy to stoop down and loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so these disciples, uh, Jesus showed himself alive to 500 people. 380 said, no thank you. 120 made their way to Jerusalem uh, when the feasts were happening into that upper room. And they positioned themselves in a place of obedience to the Lord's command. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. Let's read it one more time. It said, when the day... Of Pentecost was fully come. First of all, stop there. This was a specific day on the calendar. When the Bible says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, that, that phrase right there, fully come, in the Greek New Testament, what it means is it was a kairos moment. This was a, a moment on the calendar because God had seven feasts of Israel that Israel was to celebrate. And the, the feast of Pentecost or the feast of harvest would be when everybody had had planted their harvest. They would take it and they would bring it to the Lord and they would offer it. It was a time of celebrating the harvest people were already coming to Jerusalem they were already positioned to be there and so they come to a small upper room and they were all with one accord everybody say one accord and they were in one place so they were in one place for one purpose and they came together and notice it says this and suddenly verse 2 there came a sound from heaven do you know that there's always been a sound associated with Pentecost? I'm in the wrong place tonight. I said there's always been a sound associated with Pentecost. In fact, I believe that it is biblically impossible to get a quiet Pentecostal experience. You say, I may be deaf, I can't talk. No, but you might can, you might can clap your hands, come on, in, and, and stomp your feet. When the Holy Spirit shows up, He always makes Some noise. There was a sound from heaven as of a rushing of a mighty wind. And watch this. This wind that blew through, it filled the whole house. Everybody say the whole house. The whole house where they were sitting. The theologians are divided. There are two possible locations of the upper room that that could have been used. Um, the most probable one was a room above the temple, and so uh, it, a place that would overlook it there. And so this was a a meeting place, much like we're in tonight. We're in a meeting place. This is not our house where we live, but we commonly refer to this building. God's house, even though God doesn't live in the building, he lives in us, this is the meeting place where we come corporately to meet together with the Lord. And so the Bible says that as they came together and they were praying and they were waiting on the promise of the Father, that a sound of a mighty rushing wind came and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Verse 3, Then there appeared to them, appeared to them, Divided tongues, one translation says cloven tongues, as a fire, sat upon each of them. Somebody say, each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. and Began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them the utterance. Here's what I want you to see in this passage. I don't want to focus on the tongues tonight. I don't even want to focus so much on the wind or the fire alone. But here's what I want you to see There was something that happened in this passage individually and corporately. There was an individual experience that happened in Acts chapter 2, but there was also a corporate experience. The wind filled the house, the, the tongues sat on the individuals. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see tonight. The Holy Spirit's anointing and His power can rest upon a people, and it can also rest upon a place. Amen. I don't know about you, but I want to be a church in 2023 that the presence of God and the power of God are welcome in this place where people come in and they sense a difference. They come in and they cannot stay the same way that they came in. They sensed the presence of God. They, 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 they sensed it. And then there was a corporate thing. And then there was an individual thing. So tonight. Here's what I want you to understand. This corporate thing. Experienced. It, it, it really uh, made them experience. Something where they were. But individually. It changed their lives. And so. This Holy Spirit experience that they had in the upper room, a few verses following says that they went out in the street where the people were. And they began to preach. And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, began to preach and call the people to repentance, showing them the way of salvation. So in other words, what happened to them, get this, in the house affected them outside the house. Are you with me? You see, there, there, there's yeah, pe- people say, "People say, well, he's my personal Lord and Savior. Well, he is your personal Lord and Savior, but he's not your private Lord and Savior. There's a whole lot of soldiers in God's army who are secret service agents. Amen? You go to work, and they don't know that you're saved. You go to school. They don't know that you're saved. You don't talk saved. You don't talk about Jesus. You don't invite people to church. But what happened in the upper room, it broke. It birthed something on the inside of them personally that caused them to walk supernatural power. You see it all throughout the book of Acts. You see the casting out of devils, the healing of the sick, the raising of the dead. You see the, the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon their lives. If you fast forward, actually, from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 4, you see another corporate thing that happened. In Acts chapter 3, they had gone through immense persecution and you know, uh, they're running, trying to run them out of town and, and all of these things. And so the disciples came together and they said, Lord, look upon us. Look at our sufferings. Look at all the things that are happening to us. And, and grant unto us with all boldness that your servant may, may speak the name of Jesus with boldness. And the Bible says that they ask, Lord, stretch forth your hand to heal and do signs and wonders. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4, and the place... Where they were assembled was shaken. Everybody say the place. You see, I don't want to focus on the personal experience tonight. We're going to to do that all month next month. We're going to look at developing our, our own walk with God. But tonight, I want to focus on this corporate thing because we've got to steward the anointing of God in this church. We've got to steward it. It's important for us to do that. Before we go any further tonight, here's what I want you to let you know. The anointing of the Holy Spirit and, Jesus referenced, the Spirit Himself is a lot like the wind. You can't see it, but you know when it's there. And equally, you know when it's not there. I was driving home last night, coming up the coming up the road from sealing, and I was... I was praying, and I was listening to music, and just being honest with you, I was very drowsy. I was trying to stay awake, and I was end up calling a friend of mine who happened to be awake, and we were talking, and all of a sudden, I went, whoa. He goes, what's going on? He lives in Louisiana. I said, man, a tumbleweed just blew out in front of me. He said, a tumble what? I said, a tumbleweed. Now, what am I trying to say? I couldn't see the wind, but I could see the effects of the wind. You can't see the Holy Spirit. But we can certainly see and feel the effects of the Holy Spirit. And just like you can step outside and you can know that the wind is blowing 30 and 40 miles an hour, you also can step outside and realize it's not blowing at all. We have to steward the environment of the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our church. And so tonight there are three things. There are more than three, but I picked out three that I want us to look at tonight to help us steward the anointing. These are three of the how to's. Are you ready? If you're taking notes, number one, you ready for this? If we're gonna steward the anointing of God, number one, we must guard against disunity. We must guard against disunity in the church. Amen. Unity causes the oil of God's presence to flow. Unity causes the oil of God's presence to flow. Look at Psalm 133 with me, verses 1 through 3. We've got it on the screen. Uh, The psalmist writes, he says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron. Aaron was the high priest running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commands the blessing and life forevermore. I want you to hear what the scripture is trying to tell us that that unity fosters the anointing. When brothers dwell together in unity, and there's unity of heart, there's unity of mind. Just like in the book of Acts, when they came together for one purpose and one place, there was a spirit of unity that happened, and it released a flow of God's presence and power. Now the psalmist writes, and he said how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And then he likens it unto the anointing of the priest. The oil comes down the head and runs down to the rest of the body. You know how you get good and anointed? You get in unity. Amen. Hallelujah. Here, I wrote a couple of things down. We need unity in our leadership. Amen. Are you with me tonight? We need need our staff to be in unity. We need our board to be in unity. We need our teachers to be in unity. We have to strive for unity in our leadership. And here's what you've got to understand. Unity does not equal uniformity. You can be unified, but you don't have to be identical. Amen. I heard a story one time. (laughs) They said uh, you can take two cats and tie their tails together and you will have you will have unity but you won't have fellowship cuz what'll happen if you tie two cats tails together they're going to go to fighting and so tonight we're not talking about uniformity, but we are talking about unity in the Spirit, squashing things that the enemy would try to bring in and cause people to be um, at odds with each other. Here's another one. We need unity in our vision. You know, we pass trains out here on the tracks all the time. And, uh, you know, if two of those cars are trying to pull in, the, in a different direction, it doesn't work too well. Right? Right? we got to have unity in our vision. you got to have unity in our direction of where we're going and, and how we're going to be and what we're going to do. You've got to have unity in that area. You know, you go to a circus to see a two-headed freak. You go to these sideshow circuses and they say, pay $5 to come in and see the two-headed snake Or the two-headed alligator or the two-headed monkey. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. I have. But I want to tell you, anything with two heads on it is a freak. It's a freak. You've got to have unity in the vision, or else you have division. Come on. Here's another thing we got to have in guarding against disunity. If we want to maintain the spirit of anointing in the church, we got to have unity in our doctrine. We've got to have unity in our doctrine. That's why we have a doctrinal statement. That's why we belong to our fellowship. Not because it's the only boat in the ocean, but because we believe in the doctrinal statement. It lines up with the Word of God, that Christ is our Savior, that Jesus is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit, the millennial reign of Christ, the rapture of the church, divine healing provided for in the atonement, the initial evidence of tongues as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the infallible Word of God. We've got to have unity in our doctrine. Doctrine is so important because what happens if one person says, Well, Pastor Brad says this, but this is how I really believe, and they're teaching in an area or something? Well, that causes confusion, it causes disunity, right? You got to have unity in our doctrine. Here's the thing disunity in the body causes a disconnect. So I want you to think about it like this. Think about a a hose hooked up to a faucet, right? Now what happens if that hose is in proper working function and you turn it on? what, What happens? The water begins to flow out of it, right? But what happens if you walk up to that hose and you put a kink in it? The flow stops. Disunity always causes the flow of anointing to stop. Let me just be honest with you. I have been around the block several times, and I've never heard of a church split that they were in unity. I've never heard of a pastor run out of town because the church was in unity. I've never heard of scandal in the church when the church was in unity. Disunity in the body brings a disconnect of the flow of the anointing of God. We've got to have it in our leadership. We've got to have it in our vision. We've got to have it in our doctrine. We have to have unity. We've got to guard against disunity. In fact, the body of Christ needs to align itself like the human body, which God created. God created our human body, our white blood cells and our red blood cells. And whenever there is an adversary that attacks in our body, the Lord designed a healthy body to have the white cells begin to increase and rise up and to create an immunoresponse to attack the bad cells. That's what happens whenever there's disunity in the church. The body of Christ needs to rise up and say, we're not going to tolerate that. Amen. By the way, there's no disunity. This is just what I'm teaching. I found out that if you teach stuff when it's not a problem, it's better down the road when it is. Amen. We, got to, we have a very unified team. We've got to guard against disunity. Here's the second thing. If you want to maintain and steward the anointing in our lives, we've got to guard against dishonor. Honor can release the flow, and dishonor can stop the flow. Listen, here's what I want to tell you. There are several things I wrote down here. Obviously, we've got to honor the Lord. We've got to honor the Lord. Everybody say, honor the Lord. We've got to honor the Lord. How are we honoring Christ in our lives, in our actions, and how we do those things? And we've got to honor Him. We've got to not only honor the Lord, we've got to honor our leaders. We've got to honor our leadership. We've got to not speak ill against them. We've got to not criticize them. We've got to speak well of them. They're the people who God has put in our lives. We've got to honor the preaching of the Word of God. What does that that look like? we got to guard against dishonor. That means not running in and out unnecessarily. I understand emergencies and people got small bladders. I'm not talking about that. But just dishonoring the Word of God. You want to mess up the flow of a service? Just do that all the time. People not turning their phone off during church. You know you have that alarm set every Sunday at 11.15. And it rings. And it rings. Listen, one time is an accident. Two three times is a pattern. Amen. Now, pastor's not fussing, but I'm saying we've got to learn to honor the preaching of the Word of God. If you want to allow the Holy Spirit to move in this place, you have to, to, to reverence the Word of God. Not just when I'm preaching, but when anybody is preaching. Why? Because dishonor can stop the flow. You don't believe me? I have two passages of Scripture I want to share with you from none other than the greatest preacher that ever walked the face of the planet, the Lord Jesus Himself. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Now it happened on a certain day, as He was teaching, that there were Pharisees And teachers of the law sitting by who had come. They had come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And notice this next verse. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Why? Because Jesus would preach. There were faith would be built. People would be healed. It was his pattern. He would do that from city after city, village to village, synagogue to synagogue. This is the, the story. Mark also recorded it of when the man's friends, the paralytic, left him down, let him down through the roof, and he was healed. Jesus looked and said, "And he saw their faith. He didn't even see the man who, who was paralyzed. Scripture doesn't even indicate that he had any faith. They, he saw his friend's faith. And Jesus said, man, these, these guys right here, they're just willing to go crazy. And so they let him down through the roof, and Jesus healed the man and forgave his sin. Why? Because they on, there, was an at, there was an atmosphere of honor. People were coming from all over the place to hear and to be healed. There was so much of a chaos there, there wasn't even room to stand. This would happen all the time. Jesus would preach. The Bible says he healed all their sick. He cast out all their devils. doesn't say he healed eight of them, ten of them, a few of them. In those instances, in those environments, the Bible says Jesus healed all of them. But equally, as honor releases the flow of anointing, I want you to see this. Dishonor closes the flow of the anointing. Look at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 verse 1. Then he, being Jesus, went out from there, and he came to his own country. His disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this in which he was given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Then notice verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, uh, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are his sisters not here with us? And so they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now, I want you to notice verse 5. Don't read it wrong. Now, he could do no mighty work there. Except he laid his hands on a few sick people. I translate that. He healed a backache, a headache. He didn't do any major miracles there. Verse 6 tells us why. And he marveled because of their unbelief. See, they missed their hour of visitation when the Lord had come to their town. The same Lord who had healed the sick, raised the dead in every other other city. But because they were too familiar with his humanity, they stopped receiving from the flow of the anointing of God on his life. They began to say things like this. And that's Jesus. But they weren't saying it in a reverent way. Oh, that's Mary's son. That's Joseph's boy, the carpenter. I did a study this week. It's interesting to me. The disciples who were among the most intimate of Jesus' crowd. Now, you, Now if, if you can find this, and I hope you do go study and try to find it, I will stand in this pulpit, and I will apologize and say I missed it. But I could not find one place where they called Jesus by his first name. They addressed him as rabbi, teacher, master. They had a reverence for who he was in their life. Now, I'm not insinuating tonight that calling somebody by their first name is unholy. But what you've got to understand is that that when Jesus went to his hometown, they just become too familiar with him. Oh, that's just Jesus. Jesus. We saw him, you know, at the woodshed. Mary's boy. His daddy built a few houses around here. And you, you say, well, how can that stop the flow of anointing in the church? Well, you start treating uh, people common. I, I, my kids probably are at the age where they're going to absolutely abhor me using them as sermon illustrations. So I will refrain a lot, but. I remember it was a couple weeks ago, we were talking about something in our house. And one of my kids, I'll I'll leave them anonymous, they said, well, Seth said. I said, who? I said, that is your youth pastor. Well, but other kids call him that. I said, it doesn't matter. I don't want you becoming so familiar with him that you can't receive the word of God from him as your shepherd. Come on, somebody. Dishonor always kinks the flow of anointing. You see it over and over and over again. And here's what I want you to know something. Just like Jesus, you cannot receive from what you refuse to honor. Won't happen. Here's the third thing. Y'all get anything tonight? Here's the third thing. If we're going to steward the anointing of God in our lives, number three, we must guard against disorder. We've looked at disunity, dishonor, and now we're going to look at disorder. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Order always brings glory. Order always brings glory. In the Old Testament, God was so precise about how to do things. They didn't just haphazardly, casually the, the priest, they didn't just uh, stumble into the, the, uh, the outer courts and the inner courts and just casually set up the showbread. They didn't just casually light the fire on the candle opera. They didn't just casually put the bowl of incense in the laver of washing. They didn't just casually do all that. God had a prescribed order for them to do that in. A one, two, three, this is how I want you to do it. When, when God told Noah to build the ark... He told him exactly how to do it. So much so, how thick the curtains were to be, how many doors there were to be, how many windows—all of those things. God was so specific about His order when Moses was called up to Mount Sinai and he had a visitation from the Lord. I call it—I call it an Old Testament Pentecost because Moses went up, the Lord came down. There was fire and smoke, and uh, and uh, the Bible records in Exodus that there was a moment where there was something unintelligible that Moses said. It's it's the only place in scripture where it's a couple of dashes. Theologian says those dashes are there because the words that Moses uttered were unintelligible. You take that for what it's worth, I don't know. I'm not going to build a doctrine out of it. But here's what I know, that when Moses went up there on top of that mountain, God told him exactly how to build the tabernacle. Somebody say order. Order. Order always brings God's glory. Always brings His presence. But also, if order always brings glory, then disorder brings confusion. Disorder brings confusion. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. This will be my last passage of Scripture tonight. This, before, before I get into this too much... First Corinthians and second Corinthians, if if you'll actually go home and read it without a filter. In other words, you know, sometimes if we've been saved a long time or we've read something a long time, then we have we we pre predetermined what we want to see. Like, you know, for, for some people who are Pentecostals, you cannot read Acts chapter two any other way than tongues of fire. And that's a main part of that but there's so much more in there but if you'll take 1st Corinthians uh, and 2nd Corinthians and read it without a filter and understand that Paul was correcting some really terrible theology among the Corinthian church because God's desire was for glory to fill his house but there was chaos it was chaos in biblical times when they did communion, I've taught this before, I won't reteach it. Wine naturally had alcohol in it from fermenting, but you did not. It was considered extremely barbaric to drink straight uncut wine. They would mix it most theologians very liberally would say three parts of water to one part of wine. It would take the equivalent of four glasses of or 14 glasses of biblical wine to equal one part uh, or one one cup of regular wine today. So people want to argue the alcohol was it the same. No, it wasn't the same at all. Even children, under normal circumstances, drank communion wine at the Lord's Supper. But it wasn't like, it was so diluted. I mean, the alcohol was tracing it. You would have to drink until you got waterlogged to be even drunk from it. But the scripture tells us that Corinth, they weren't doing that. They were taking it straight. They were getting drunk at communion. They were eating all the bread. They weren't leaving any for anybody. They loved spiritual gifts. They loved how they how the, the sound of their own voice. And so they would get in tongue contest and, and this person would get up and they would speak in tongues and, and they would say, well I'm not going to let them outdo me. So this other person got up and they spoke in tongues and the preacher didn't get a chance to preach because everybody wanted to speak in tongues and then the prophets got rolled up and they got to doing it. And then this person, you know, they walked in the back of the synagogue and they had a, a, a cassette tape full of special songs that they wanted to sing and, and everything was out of order and Paul wrote the book to set them in order because God wanted the anointing and the glory to fill his house so let's it, it, with that in mind let's take a second and read this 1 Corinthians 14 verse 33 how is it brethren that when you come together meaning in your church service Each of you has a psalm. You got a song to sing. You got a teaching. Somebody has a tongue. Somebody has revelation. Somebody has interpretation. Uh, Which, by the way, that does kind of mean that those things should be happening. (laughs) Amen. If you never have a tongue. Listen, when I I grew up, I'm not making fun of anybody. I promise you I'm not. I'm just being honest with you. When I was growing up, same church. You could time it by your watch. Watch same the same the same two people always gave the message in tongue and the interpretation was always the same i'm telling you it was just it was you could count it on your watch and i grew up i didn't know that there were any other gifts of the spirit i thought there were two gifts of the spirit i didn't know there were nine cuz we when i grew up i never saw prophecy or word of knowledge or gifts of healings or anything like that we prayed for people to be healed it was hit or miss we didn't really think god was going to do it but we prayed cuz that's what you were supposed to do you know um, I didn't know there was anything else. But reading 1 Corinthians, Paul's, Paul's telling them that, that there, there needs to be a song. There needs to be a psalm. There needs to be a teaching. There, there's a time of coming together and, and, an, and an interpretation of tongue. But listen, uh, um, you need to have it sometime. But see, some people think you're not spiritual if you don't have it every time. But the thing is, is that there are a lot of gifts, a lot of administrations, a lot of functions of the Spirit. And I want you to notice that what Paul was dealing with here, and I'll I'll make this brief. Let's go back. He said, how is it, brethren? You come together. Each of you have a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. That's a big word. Let me break it down. I know you're smart. Edify means to build up. All things ought to be done to build up the body. If a song is to be sung, it edifies the body. The teaching edifies the body. If there's a word of prophecy, edification, exhortation, or comfort, it should build up the body. Come on. All of those things should be to build up the body. Then notice what he says. If anyone speaks in a tongue. Now, he's not talking about prayer here or worship. He's talking about the message in tongue that needs an interpretation. Okay? Okay? He said, if if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, and each in turn. Do you know why Paul said each in turn? Because they were doing it over each other. They were doing it over each other. It was chaos. Somebody would come in, they would say, these folks are crazy. So, and then he says, Let there be two, or at most three, each in turn, and then he says, and let one interpret. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. If you're going to interrupt a service with a tongue, somebody better pray and tell us what's being said. That's what he said. Again, not talking about private prayer. You're praying, praying in tongues, whatever. He's not talking about that. This is an interruption in the service, getting everybody's attention. And he says, uh, says, but I love this because Paul's all about order. Verse 28, but if there's no interpreter... Let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Paul's saying don't cause a bunch of confusion. Then I love this. He goes on. He goes, and then let two or three prophets speak. There needs to be room for prophetic utterance in church. Everything doesn't have to be followed by a tongue to be prophetic. You can have the known tongue inspiration without the unknown tongue. But he says, uh, let two or three prophets speak, but then don't, don't miss this part. Let the others judge. There are people today that get flat foot upset with you if you judge a prophetic word that somebody prophesies. Well, Paul said plainly in keeping order in the church, prophecy is to be judged. You know why? Because New Testament prophecy is not the same caliber as Old Testament prophecy. There was no real revealed Word of God in those days. And those prophets were speaking Scripture. That's why if they missed it, they got stoned. That's not the New Testament pattern. Listen, the Bible gives room for somebody to get it wrong, but he says you got to judge the Word. Is it, does it line up with God's character? Did the Word come to pass? I mean, there's so many different things in there. But I want you to notice Paul's whole thing is about order. He's wanting to keep order. And then he says... But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. You know why he said that? Because they would, they would be, this prophet would be prophesying, and then this other prophet would get something, and he would start sharing. And then, the, then that prophet would want to outdo the prophet again and go back and add on to his word. And he said, no, 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 let, let the first remain silent. Let the others judge. And notice what he says, verse 31, For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and be encouraged. But then look at this, verse 32. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You know what that's saying right there? People say, I can't control myself. I have to say it. I have. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. He prompts us, He leads us, sometimes very, very urgently. But to say we don't have any control, God is not the author of confusion. Look at verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So, listen, if you want to steward the anointing and make sure that that the presence of God is in the place, what do we have to do? We got to guard against disunity. You got to get rid of it, got to squash it, got to guard against dishonor. Becoming too familiar with the presence of God, coming too familiar with the church, coming too familiar with your leaders. You got to guard against dishonor. Then you got to guard against disorder. Because order always brings glory. Closing with this thought I believe the reason why the Lord had me teach on this tonight is because He wants to do things that are exceedingly and abundantly far above. Anything we ever could imagine, right? As far as seeing people saved, seeing people converted, delivered, set free, touched by the presence of God. See, what we see, what we in the natural see as disorder doesn't necessarily mean it's disorderly to God. You you see, uh, uh, somebody can walk down here and need prayer and you pray for them, that's not disorder. See, God's not concerned about our little program. Amen? Now we, now, we plan, but the Holy Spirit ultimately has His way. We plan. The Bible says we need to plan about life, and we, we need to plan about tomorrow. The Scripture says tomorrow, if it be the Lord's will, we'll do such and such. Planning is great. But the Holy Spirit leads us when we operate in order. So I want you to put those things in the forefront of your mind as we walk into 2023 and ask the Lord to help you to guard against disunity. I'm boldly asking you tonight, if you walk up on a conversation that's unwholesome, shut it down. Shut it down. Don't text me that about my leader. Don't don't say that. Shut it down. You're not going to talk about our kid's pastor because she's awesome. Amen. not going to talk about our youth pastor like that. Amen. You're not going to do that. You shut it down. We're going to guard against dishonor. And we're going to guard against disorder. We're going to ask the Lord to give us wisdom. Because I believe the greatest things are ahead of us and not behind us. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand up.